All right, everybody, welcome back to Santa Fe Psych. I'm your professor, Ryan Keith, for General Psychology. Um, I am here today with my friend and colleague, Dr. Ryan Barbeau, to answer your own questions. Um, we're going to take a little bit of time and talk about what it's like working as a clinical psychologist and then move on to the questions that you submitted in your question and answer uh, session. So, um, Ryan, Dr. Barbeau, uh, maybe uh, you can just start by telling us what kind of a psychologist are you? All right. Well, thanks for having me today. Um, yeah, as, as you know from your studies, there's lots of different um, aspects of psychology. So um, my doctorate happens to be um, in clinical psychology. So um, yeah, that's that's what my degree is in. And, and in addition to being a professor at Santa Fe, I also do um, practice. So doing psychotherapy and psychoassessment and supervising and training um, doctoral students. Awesome. Yeah. And um, maybe maybe you could tell us a little bit. I know you said your degree is in clinical psychology. What makes that degree different from other degrees in psychology? Sure. That, yeah, that's a good question. So um, and for my students, too, when if they're considering a you know, future career in psychology or mental health, they usually ask me kind of, well, what path can they take? And, you know, there's lots of different um, paths to take. So basically, you can get a doctorate degree in, um, you know, if, if you look at your textbook, there's lots of different chapters. There's a chapter on social psychology and developmental psychology, and almost every single one of those chapters has some sort of doctoral degree that you could get. Um, so basically the chapters having to do with um, um, therapy and diagnosing and things like that, that's basically what my um, um, graduate school education was focused on. But even with if you want to pursue clinical psychology, there's still options there. People can get a PhD or a PsyD or various kinds of master's degrees. So um, I happened to get a PsyD after my undergrad degree. And um, in some ways, the programs are similar. And at the end of the day, you can still do similar things, but there's different areas of emphasis. And um, yeah, so it, it, it's kind of complicated, but um, <laughs> there's lots of different degree options out there. And, you know, if, if students are interested, that's something that, you know, hopefully they can find an advisor or somebody else mm -hmm. like that that they can talk to about those options and kind of see what the pros and cons of all the different um, graduate school options are. That's that's really cool. And I'm, I'm actually glad you touched on this. Um, I was going to ask about your education anyway, um, because um, so many folks who are listening might be thinking themselves about, you know, pursuing a, a degree in psychology and want to know what what that means. Um, you mentioned like that you have a PsyD as compared with a, a PhD. So I know you can't speak to everyone's experience in terms of getting a, a psychology graduate degree being trained. Um, but maybe you could, could tell us a little bit. What what was your education like? Sure. So during um, undergrad, I took some psychology classes and I found them very interesting. Um, so I looked at other ways to get more involved. And there was a few um, research labs on on campus. Um, and I got some experience in those research labs and I really in, enjoyed it and initially wanted to pursue a PhD in psychology. Um, and different PhD programs in psychology are, are different, but some of the ones I had looked at, I found that a lot of the time in grad school was going to be spent um, really focusing on research, so trying to publish yeah. journal articles. And they would also train me to be a clinician, but at the end of the day, a lot of the emphasis was going to be on research. And at that point, I had kind of decided that I thought research was really interesting, but I didn't necessarily 
want to be a you know a full-time researcher i wanted to focus more on being a clinician and then i found this um PsyD option yeah. which trains people on research methodology but more so so they can be a consumer of research and then go go practice as yeah. opposed to actually being the people that are producing the research so again you know some phd programs are more focused on training clinicians and some are more focused on training researchers and some are doing both but PsyD programs are kind of that's what they're designed to do is just train people to be clinicians so that's the the route i took but yeah. you know again there's you know you know pros and cons for all the different different routes sure yeah, yeah so um it sounds a little bit like you're saying but would it be fair to say that like a a PsyD is more practitioner focused, whereas a PhD often is more research focused. Yeah, again, there's going to be it depends, and yeah. and um, and certainly every PhD program in clinical psychology allows people to mm-hmm. move on to be clinicians. But at at, at some point, you know, um, some decades ago now, there was a group of folks who got together and said we need to create a degree option for people that from the beginning are 100 percent sure they mm-hmm. they want to be clinicians. So that they can focus their time and energy, yeah. time and energy that way. So. Yeah, um, I I know that like uh, for for like a lot of students like me, I had really like no idea what I wanted to do in undergrad, right? And that was part part of my path, you know, figuring that out. But like you said, like a program for people who like a hundred percent know they they want to be psychologists, it's it's kind of cool, right? Um, now I I'm sure there are like a lot of people who are still searching, but. I think a, a key question for a lot of students who are, are interested in becoming psychologists is like, well, how long do I have to wait? How much longer do I still have to be in school before I need to, or be- before I can like take my licensing exam and become a psychologist? What was that path kind of kind of like for you? Yeah, that's a really good good question. So it actually, it, to some degree, varies from state to state. Mm-hmm. Each state has like a Department of Health mm-hmm. that issues licenses for people to be you know, physicians or physical therapists or psychologists or counselors. But generally speaking, to be a licensed psychologist in Florida and in most other states, it's going to be, um, you know, having the undergrad degree, Mm -hmm. then getting a doctoral degree, which will take somewhere between four to seven years, depending on kind of the type of research you're involved in, the type of practicum experiences, and then a year-long internship which there's like a match process where you you don't necessarily do that where you did your graduate training. In fact, the majority of people will Mm -hmm. travel elsewhere for that year. And after that, another year of postdoctoral training where again, you you may or may not stay in the same location. And then there's um, a a national exam that you take. Mm -hmm. So kind of the soonest you'd be able to complete all that is, um, I guess, six or seven years. And generally, it takes maybe even a couple of years longer than that. So another option to consider is to pursue getting um, becoming a licensed mental health counselor, which would generally be two years of graduate school, again, focused on training you to be a clinician. And and then again, there's a licensure exam after like um, a certain period of, of supervised work. So that's a quicker path for people that are sure that they, they want to do counseling. I guess the differences between being a licensed psychologist and a licensed mental health counselor, um, again, it may kind of depend, but for the most part, psychologists get a little bit of extra training in, um, in statistics and um, assessment, um, testing and diagnoses and things like that. In addition to doing counseling, where a licensed mental health counselor, the, the focus is mainly going to be on, um, on counseling. 
are are there things that that you can do now in your work because of your your graduate degree that you wouldn't be able to do if you were a licensed mental health counselor? Yeah, so the main things that come to mind would be administering um, certain tests and mm -hmm. assessment. So IQ tests, personality tests, so administering those, interpreting those, writing those sorts of reports. Um, let's see, in addition to that, potentially, if I wanted to become involved in research, I might have a little bit of a better background for that because yeah. of extra classes I've taken and, and statistics and research methods and the fact that I did um, um, what, what in my program they called like a clinical research project, which mm -hmm. is, um, you know, kind of the, you know, similar to a dissertation mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a lot of ways. Um, so those are things that if a licensed mm -hmm. mental health counselor wanted to get involved in research or wanted to get involved in testing and assessment, they might need to go get, take some extra classes or do some other kind of training or get some other kind of credentials before they'd be prepared to do that. So those are the main um, sorts of things that come to mind in cool. terms of differences. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so in terms of the the kind of work you can do, um, I know that for a lot of students who think about you know becoming a clinical psychologist or or a counseling psychologist, you know they think about maybe what we see in the media. You've got a, a private practice where you you know work out of a small office and and meet with clients and stuff like that. Um, but I know your your work is a bit different from that. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about kind of what what the work is that you do or have done, and maybe what your your kind of day to day experience is like. Yeah, absolutely. So in, in a lot of um, graduate school programs, they'll have what they call practicums, which are experiences where you go and you get um, training. And that can be in private practices. But really, there's a lot of other settings where um, counselors and psychologists practice. So for me, um, I've done some work in the, in the school system. Mm -hmm. So some of that is providing, again, you know, testing and evaluation and assessment for um children to evaluate for things such as um, ADHD or emotional mm -hmm. behavioral issues or um, learning disorder issues, as well as also providing some, you know, counseling and, and therapy for students. I've also worked in community mental health mm -hmm. centers, um, providing like some outpatient services and inpatient services. Um, I've also worked um, in the VA. Um, and I've worked for the Department of Corrections, so the yeah. prison system. And then currently I work at the University of Florida in their counseling and wellness center. Mm -hmm. So really, yeah, there's a range of different settings. Mm -hmm. So I've been a psychologist for, for a while now, many, mm -hmm. you know, several years. And I've never worked in private practice. And maybe, mm -hmm. maybe at some point I will in the future, but, you know, mm -hmm. perhaps not. You know, there's lots of settings where yeah. um, counselors and psychologists can work. Cool. Um, do you enjoy your clinical work? Yeah, I do. A yeah. Absolutely. I feel like being trained as a um, as a psychologist, I feel like my clinical work helps me in the classroom as a professor because I can kind of mm -hmm. provide some of those examples. And I feel like my teaching keeps me sharp as a clinician because I, you know, I'm always kind of reminded, okay, am I really doing, you know, the, the best practices possible and everything. So I really do... Um, um, yeah, enjoy the work very much. And I like the flexibility of being able yeah. to work in, in different settings, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I really do enjoy it. I feel like it's, it, it, it can be draining at times, but it's also, you know, very rewarding. So I've, I've got a pile of questions here. Um, but what I tried to do was, uh, since it, it turns out um, we're all pretty curious about a lot of similar things, is 
uh, rather than uh, cherry picking one person's question and ignoring a bunch of others, what I tried to do was take all the similar ones and put them together into a topic. So um, these won't be so much like specific questions um, my students have asked, but rather just kind of like uh, pulling a lot of them together into questions that I think might address a bunch of questions all at once. Does that sound, sound good? Sounds good. Cool, all right, so so I'm gonna just run through and ask some of these, and uh, a, a lot of them are gonna tie right into the stuff we've been talking about already. Um, you know, thinking about like your your work in uh, practice, uh, there were a number of questions that I think, you know, we, we wanna know a little bit about what it's like to go see a counselor or a clinical psychologist. Um, so uh, I, I think the, the first question I could ask is, um, what can a person expect from the first appointment with a counseling or clinical psychologist. And um, like, if that's the first one, what does a typical appointment look like? Yeah, so that's a really good good question. And um, a lot of the answers are gonna be, it, it depends, but I wanna try to explain a little <laughs> bit about you know what it depends on. Yeah. So I think to some degree that depends on maybe what setting um, mm-hmm. the person is, is seeking services in. So like I said, in the various settings I've worked in, some of those mm-hmm. appointments might look a little bit different. So in some settings, if the focus is more on kind of initially kind of triaging and coming up with a diagnosis, sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, the the first meeting might be more of like an interview where mm-hmm. there's a lot of like information gathering to try to figure out, you know, wh- what what's going on and what kind of service or services might be most helpful for the person. Um, and then sometimes that means that, you know, the person doing the initial meeting or intake or triage or whatever it might be labeled isn't necessarily the person who the person might work with Mm -hmm. you know longer longer term so in settings like community mental health centers or the department of corrections or maybe even a place like the va there might be something like that Mm -hmm. so that first appointment then let's say the it's decided that the person could benefit from some counseling then they might be referred to a different counselor Mm -hmm. and that that first counseling session then um might look a little different there'd still be some kind of interview but mm-hmm. at some point it would kind of shift into okay like this is the kind of treatment that we want to provide for whatever the issue um mm-hmm. might be so it, an analogy that i've used sometimes that i think might be helpful is like in in, in physical therapy if you say well what is the what is physical therapy going to mm-hmm. look like well sure. it would entirely depend on the injury the nature of the injury mm-hmm. how severe it is um, and, and, and factors um, mm-hmm. like that. So if the problem is um, uh, something that's more um, specific and, and discreet, mm-hmm. like maybe if the person has, um, let's, just as an example, like sure. a phobia of snakes or something mm-hmm. like that, you know, if we look at the research, there might be some pretty, you know, directive, straightforward approaches where mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to spend a lot of time and energy telling the psychologist about your childhood. You're just going to jump into some techniques mm-hmm. and go ahead and address that symptom and try mm-hmm. to, to, to minimize or, or get rid of that symptom. If the person has some kind of, um, you know, kind of more general concerns about, you know, relationship difficulties that are, there's not mm-hmm. a specific problem per se, but just kind of some some ongoing concerns and kind of chronic issues and and um, and frustrations with that, then it might be a little bit more open ended and gathering mm-hmm. information and then kind of ultimately deciding kind of what um, what interventions might be the most helpful. Sure. So so again, it kind of depends on a, a lot mm-hmm. of factors. And like I said, some settings are going to be more focused on needing a diagnosis because it has to do with mm-hmm. you know 
how the services get paid for with insurance and things yeah. like that. In other settings where maybe that's not required, yeah. maybe that'll it'll it'll there won't be necessarily so much of a focus on diagnosing and mm-hmm. and um, so so yeah, so it can really depend on a lot. But hopefully that maybe kind of clarifies yeah. a little bit sort of some of the factors that mm-hmm. that that may influence like kind of what that may look like or feel. Yeah, like. no, I a- absolutely in that that idea that there isn't a one size fits all approach to mental health, right? That um, we wouldn't use the same um, uh, the same treatment techniques for you know different physical illnesses. We would approach it kind of with a similar mindset for um, mental illnesses, or even like you say, somebody who's maybe not seeking a diagnosis but is looking more for for general support. Sure, right? exactly. It's like another analogy. It's like in in construction if you say well what's a better tool a hammer or a screwdriver well it depends on what you're trying to accomplish you know so That's same good. thing with with mental health there's lots of different tools and lots of different mm-hmm. approaches and you know a well-trained clinician will kind of have all of those tools mm-hmm. in the toolbox so to speak and be able to hopefully collaboratively work with mm-hmm. you to figure out what kind of tools might be most helpful another kind of way to look at it is like in you know good good medical practice mm-hmm. there should always be informed consent right when you sure. go to see your doctor they should, if you have knee pain, they should explain to you, okay, there's this range of options. You could do physical therapy, you could do surgery, and these are the pros mm-hmm. and cons of these different approaches. These are what they would look like. So similarly, a good you know, mm-hmm. mental health clinician should be able to, to also explain to you, like, here's what I think is going on. Does that make sense? Here's what I think yeah. would be the various options. And then not kind of launch into any mm-hmm. interventions without some kind of informed consent where... You know, you, so hopefully it's, yeah. it's collaborative, and the patient and yeah. the, and the and the mental health provider are both on the same page. And, mm-hmm. and informed consent too is kind of an ongoing process where we decide, okay, how, this is how we want to start, mm-hmm. and then hopefully there's kind of continually checking in as the process goes along to say, is this working? Do we want to keep approaching it the same way? Yeah. Do we want to approach it a different way? Is there some other kind of services that that could be helpful? So so hopefully, too, it's it's yeah. it's not like um, some kind of um, magical thing where mm-hmm. things are happening and you're not sure why it's being done. Hopefully there's yeah. some kind of informed consent where you, you and the, and the provider are on the same page. Well, I, I think that's a good point to, to make. And I know like we, we've talked about this in some of our conversations like this, uh, assumption that, you know, psychologists have this special way of seeing into people's heads, right. That like, you know, it's this kind of like other level behind the curtain, you know, that somehow, uh, as a clinician, you're like manipulating a person's subconscious without them realizing it, right? And and being out in the open, I I think that that helps a lot. I know like um, the very first time I I ever went to see a psychologist, I was I was in college, right? So it wasn't something that I went with my parents or anything like that. And I remember that like that sense of unknown, like I didn't know what I was walking into. Um, I think that was a really big thing that for me. You know, I, I think I waited longer than I should have to, to go and see, right? Um, I, I was reading um, some stats recently about the, you know, uh, a third of, of our population um, is going to qualify for an anxiety disorder at some point, right? And for college students, that's even higher. I think um, a, a recent study here in the U.S. showed, and I, I think it was just a survey study, showed that uh, whether they were diagnosed or not in the sample they looked at, um, a half of the students we're demonstrating symptoms of anxiety disorders, right? Like diagnosable levels of them. So, you know, like I, I probably waited longer than I should to look for help partially because I didn't know what was coming. Um, but I know like another thing that a lot of people struggle with is 
um, knowing like what they're really getting themselves into, right? Like, I think uh, for for a lot of people, they they find it really attractive when there's like a quick solution. And I know that for um, a lot of folks, the assumption about a, going to see a psychologist is that you know you might be signing up for something that's going to last the rest of your life, right? That you're mentally ill and this is who you are and this is the thing you have to do. You know, you might go see your chiropractor every two weeks. You'll also go see your psychologist every two weeks. It's just a, a new place to put this stuff. Um, what what do you think you you could tell some of our folks about like what to expect in terms of time commitment, prognosis, stuff like that? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I think it's a very mm-hmm. good question. So so again, another kind of analogy that, that may be helpful is like, Let's say, you know, physically you you find that you want to get in better shape. So let's say you um, go to see a personal trainer. So it's one of those things where, yeah, they can help provide some guidance and some support and direction. But I mean, ultimately, they can't get on the treadmill and and run for you. And they can kind of explain to you, these are the options. And this is what I recommend. I want you to do this amount of cardiovascular work and, you know, this amount of weight training. Um, so it's, it's, it's really up to you though, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you can find a personal trainer and, and say, I want to, you know, do this type of work. And Which of that. course I would never do because I'm incredibly <laughs> physically fit already. Right. So yeah, no, of course. And, and, but, and I like to kind of view it that way too, where I think sometimes, you know, we kind of have, we're accustomed to seeing doctors for regular checkups usually, mm-hmm. or that's kind of a, you know, a yeah. recommended standard practice. But I mean, in, in some ways we could maybe view mental health in a similar in a similar way it's something that you know you know for all of us our physical health and our mental health they take you know consistent um you know upkeep and and work it's just like you take a shower not once but you have to take one every morning right you have to continue maintaining your hygiene over the course of time so you know sometimes we can maintain our mental health you know without necessarily seeing a professional just like sometimes we can maintain our our physical health Mm -hmm. without necessarily you know seeing a personal trainer all the time but it can always help to have a professional to provide some kind of guidance and support and and consultation i i think your 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 question was kind of how much of a time commitment so Mm -hmm. again i mean i think it would kind of depend i mean sometimes i've worked with folks and i've literally met with them just once you know they come in they had some mm-hmm. kind of concerns we check it out and after one session they feel like they got what they needed mm-hmm. and and that's it and it was literally a one-time situation um and i've worked with other folks for mm-hmm. years um you know several years and you know probably the average is somewhere around you know maybe six sessions or mm-hmm. something like that Sure. Six to eight or something like that yeah. is probably the, you know, the mean and median and mode, yeah. you know, would probably hover around yeah. around those. Um, but it really depends. And that's something, too, that you can you can mm-hmm. speak with the person yeah. about, you know, if you want to see a mental health provider, that can be one of the questions. Um, in fact, one of, that's one of the questions I actually usually ask people when they first meet to make sure that we're on the same page. Yeah. It's like, what are you thinking? Now you have these concerns and now what are you thinking in terms of like, what were you expecting? To make sure that we're kind of on the same page and often oftentimes we are you know oftentimes i find that people's expectations about how long they might want to meet with me to work on resolving whatever issues they're coming in with is usually pretty similar to kind of what my mm-hmm. um, expectations would be or sometimes it's sure. off you know sometimes they think like this is going to take a really long time and sometimes you know i can give them some good news yeah. actually i don't think it'll necessarily take that long or sometimes they think oh yeah like this will be fixed right away right there's some kind of you know 
sure silver bullet this is going to fix mm-hmm. this right away and i have to maybe kind of help explain to them like no well this might take yeah. a little bit of longer it's just like if you want to lose 100 pounds mm-hmm. you probably need to go see a personal trainer for longer than a week so, you know some things sure. just take longer to resolve um than others mm-hmm. but but again you know it it's not something that you know a mental health provider is going to be able to you know um, ultimately it's it's up to you, you know, a personal mm-hmm. trainer isn't going to kind of lock you in the gym and not let you leave. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, same with mental health. I mean, there's, you know, some examples of a person is, you know, considered an imminent you know, mm-hmm. danger to themselves or others. Then sometimes there's certain kind of procedures mm-hmm. like in Florida, it's called the, the Baker Act. Sure. That certain things can happen involuntarily. But these are kind of like some extreme sort of mm-hmm. examples. And those are done to to protect people and to keep people alive so mm-hmm. that they can um they can they can get some help um but again i mean this is like fairly rare that something like that is going to be implemented like you know 99 percent mm-hmm. of the time we're talking about something that's voluntarily so whatever the mental health provider recommends you know you're free sure. to, to follow that or not like i said it, with the exceptions of mm-hmm. some kind of more you know extreme examples where people are are imminently dangerous to themselves or others so I, I think it's interesting because you, you kind of led into the next question that I've, that I've got here talking about, um, you know, and, and I know you, you talked a lot about maybe the kind of what the beginning of treatment looks like, whether it's involuntary or voluntary, but talking about, you know, you see people for six to eight sessions or even just like one session. Um, a, a lot of people ask this question in a different form or another, but I think I, I distilled it down to, to one little piece here. Is it possible to cure a mental illness? Yeah, that. That's a really good good question, um, and, and some of this too is you 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 know learn from from your textbook and, and the course you're taking is there's different um, perspectives on on psychology, kind of a more biological perspective and a more humanistic perspective, um, a kind of a more psychodynamic perspective. So the answer to that question kind of depends on what perspective mm-hmm. a person is coming from, but kind of more broadly speaking. Um, there's certain conditions like anxiety and depression, which are considered um, things that um, a person isn't necessarily born with. They might be mm-hmm. born with a predisposition to them, but they won't necessarily have them and manifest them unless certain stressors occur. But that when those things occur, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, those diagnoses are based on a person reporting a certain degree of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And at some point, those symptoms can can resolve either with or without treatment. Um, and once those symptoms are resolved and the criteria is no longer met, then essentially mm-hmm. the person is scared of those things. Now, they could, you know, come back later. Yeah. But, yeah, they can be. Whereas other things that are kind of considered more like neurodevelopmental um, disorders mm-hmm. like ADHD or... Um, or learning disorders, those are considered kind of more chronic conditions. Sure. The person can certainly develop very good ways to cope and, and mm-hmm. manage with those conditions to the point where maybe at some point, um, you know, they're not really experiencing any troubling symptoms and maybe even the criteria mm-hmm. wouldn't necessarily be met. But theoretically, those are things that are mm-hmm. that are brain conditions that will be lifelong. Similarly, things like a traumatic brain injury sure, yeah. um, or Alzheimer's disease and yeah. things like that. So some things, yeah. I guess the short answer would be, yeah, some things are considered curable and some mm-hmm. things would, be, would not be considered curable. Sure. So it's um, th- there was a... Uh, one of the, the folks who sent in a question um, asked specifically about ADHD, kind of thinking about that that track that um, is that, like they, they were saying pretty much they'd always thought of it as something 
that could be grown out of kind of you just have to wait for people to mature from what you've seen is it possible to kind of grow out of a disorder like adhd and you know kind of grow up and it's not there anymore sure uh, i guess a point i would make mm-hmm. and, you know to, to help to help answer that would be this idea and you know some of these things within the field um you know there's some matter of kind of debate mm-hmm. and, and and controversy but if you look at medicine, things are mm-hmm. diagnosed in kind of a very, um, you know, qualitative way, either something, um, somebody does have something or they don't have sure. something. Yeah. So like if you're pregnant, you either are pregnant or you're not pregnant. You can't be, you know, partially <laughs> kind pregnant. of pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. Or other pregnant, other things like that. Yeah. You know, you do a biopsy and either this is cancerous or it's not cancerous yeah, sure. and, and things of that matter. But with mental health, a lot of folks argue, and there's some good research to support this, that a lot of these things are kind of viewed on a continuum. Just so like something like ADHD, different heights and mm-hmm. different weights and different hair colors, people's frontal lobe, the area having to do with focus and attention and concentration, mm-hmm. are created differently. Yeah, and you know, some folks are going to have you know more activity in in that region of the brain, and some you know less activity. And there's kind of a range. So mm-hmm. we kind of have you know kind of a cut point where we say people that are showing this degree of inattention and hyperactivity, we're going to label that as, as, mm-hmm. as ADHD. And, and, and oh, sorry, I, I was going to ask, and that line, this kind of ties in with a, another question that a, a number sure. of folks submitted. It was kind of like, what's that, what is that difference between, you know, this kid who's kind of a pain in the ass and won't sit still and the kid who's got ADHD or someone who's sad and someone who's depressed or someone who is really imaginative and someone who's schizophrenic right like where where do i i know like where the field draws a line but you as a as a clinician where do you tend to feel that that's most appropriate to draw sure no it's a that's a really good question yeah so the the, the dsm the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders <laughs> published by the american psychiatric association that's what they they aspire to do is figure mm-hmm. out what's what's the the best place to kind of draw this line where yeah. you know people beyond that line are really suffering for something that's that's mm-hmm. distressing to them and that's going to benefit from getting a label mm-hmm. and, and and getting and getting some help yeah but you know a, a lot of it is kind of you know culturally based to some degree mm-hmm. and can kind of change that the years right the dsm is something that constantly has updates and things mm-hmm. change and and and, and shift slightly and Theoretically, each clinic there should be some iterator reliability. Mm-hmm. So no matter what clinician you see, they should kind of have used that same line. Yeah. But you know, in reality, there's going to be some differences where some clinicians mm-hmm. might be a little bit more liberal in providing the sure. diagnosis, and and some might be a little bit more conservative. Hopefully, that doesn't vary too mm-hmm. much. You know, that's why there's you get a license, and you know, you have to pass <laughs> yeah. similar tests. Hopefully, there's yeah. some standards that align. But with something like ADHD, it is true that. Um, as a person ages, mm-hmm. you know, there's, you know, because of brain plasticity and things like that, the brain can change. So certainly things may manifest differently. So again, so theoretically, the person will still always have kind of the same, you know, you know, they're born with a brain and mm-hmm. that's the brain that they'll age with and die with. But the brain is always, mm-hmm. always changing. So it might be that yeah. some of the hyperactivity that that was experienced in, in childhood that doesn't, mm-hmm. you don't really see that as an adult but there might be like other little areas and pieces where you're like okay like that 
some of that there's still kind of some some yeah. residue of that or or you know some evidence of that so a lot of it too i think is is about um about the kind of maybe like career the person chooses sure. or kind of how they structure their lifestyle and things like that because to some degree even though maybe we might label yeah. something like adhd as a disorder sure you know there's there's things that a person whose brain kind of operates in that way they might yeah. kind of thrive in certain examples so this isn't like an absolute but sometimes people that maybe were diagnosed as adhd as children yeah. might actually thrive and do really well in kind of like high-paced environments like mm -hmm. working in the er or an intensive sure. care unit or some kind of emergency responder um so it's mm -hmm. you know it's it it's we don't necessarily have to always view disorders as bad things sometimes sure. it's just about like for that particular person, maybe mm -hmm. the expectation to sit down in a desk for eight hours a day is really mm -hmm. challenging for them, but they might thrive in a different environment. So sure. some of it is about that as well. So, but hopefully the, yeah. the people we're actually diagnosing and medicating for ADHD are people that kind of mm -hmm. very clearly are going to have significant difficulties mm -hmm. um, if we don't if we don't treat this, and, yeah. and, and they're going to get more help than harm from the from the medication mm -hmm. and the treatment. So there's been some debate about maybe at some point we've we overdiagnosed ADHD, mm -hmm. and it's actually interesting to look at. Um, there's even different maps of the United States and different areas have really? different levels <laughs> of diagnosis cool. so it yeah. uh, asked the question is it true or do kids in the southeast just have more adhd than other parts of the country yeah. or is there something about you know the teachers and the mm -hmm. clinicians and the parents in the southeast that results sure. in more kids getting referred and diagnosed and yeah. that's kind of an open question it's, it's hard to know exactly and i mean we're, about. we're not even hitting that point of like you know reduced recess time and increased time spent on like you know, classroom work. Like I know, um, I don't know if it was this way when you were in high school, but I know like when I was in high school, if you were in one of the advanced programs, you could opt out of uh, phys ed or personal fitness and instead like take more math classes, right? Which I know is pr problematic for, for a lot of reasons. But. Yeah, well, and absolutely, it's, it's interesting yeah. you, you bring up um, exercise, you know, for folks who are experiencing, whether they be yeah. children yeah. or adults, some of those kind of inattentive mm -hmm. concerns, one of the first things that's really a good thing to try is exercise because mm -hmm. exercise, you know, stimulates some of those, sure. um, those chemicals in the brain yeah. that help with attention and, and focus. Mm -hmm. And, and really that's kind of like the first line, like make sure that the person's getting mm -hmm. appropriate exercise, make sure they're getting appropriate sleep. That's some, sometimes resolves the inattention or their hyperactivity yeah. concerns. And, you know, developmentally speaking, you know, young children are supposed to get, you know, couple hours if not more of exercise yeah. a day and if they're not getting that they probably will be causing a commotion so again that's not to yeah. say though that there might not be children who despite getting sleep and despite mm -hmm. getting exercise are still suffering for those symptoms and those children then may benefit from a stimulant yeah. but it's sort of like just how you wouldn't want to do surgery before you try physical therapy really until yeah. you make sure a child is exercising well and eating appropriately mm -hmm. and getting sleep it wouldn't really be a good yeah. idea to just put them on stimulant meds right away. And, and hopefully that doesn't mm -hmm. happen sure. often, but sometimes perhaps it, it does. You know, and it, it's, it's funny you say this because, you know, um, as a kid, I was diagnosed with ADHD and put on meds and the, the whole spectrum of stuff, right? Um, and, you know, as soon as I moved from a job, you know, working in, in the sciences where it's like you're working with data, you're in a very quiet environment and you do the same thing over and over all day long, you know, 
once I moved from that to, to what I'm doing now, which is teaching, where it's like I'm in I'm in different places, talking about different things, focus on lots of different things, it's almost like being totally non-symptomatic, right? And when you talk about the exercise piece, um, I can tell a really big difference even in myself um, when I have a chance to, you know, like a day like today, go outside and do an hour of yard work before I try to work as opposed to like my, my standard MO, which is just like get up and try to get to work. And it's, you know, it's, it's really funny how much harder it is uh, to do all the, the normal kinds of work that, that you need you to talked do. About psychology, or, uh, talked about ADHD being on this kind of like a spectrum almost. And, and I had a, a question asker who asked about, um, you know, Asperger's syndrome and autism and all that being combined into a spectrum. Also, it sounds a little bit like what you're saying is that we could take that same approach and look at a lot of mental illnesses that way. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So that's kind of one of the big kind of debates and discussions going mm-hmm. on in the field right now. So currently mm-hmm. the the DSM is based on an approach that's either you have something or you don't have mm-hmm. something. And in some ways that's helpful because it fits in with kind of, you know, the the, the medical model. You know, either you have sure. a torn ACL or you don't, or you have cancer or you don't, or you are pregnant or you're mm-hmm. not. So it's nice to kind of have mental health yeah. health work in the same way but a lot of folks say that there's some real issues or concerns and that really we ought to look at almost all mental health mm-hmm. more on this continuum and in some degrees intuitively it kind of makes some sense right you know mm-hmm. all of us kind of have some sense of what it feels like to be a little bit nervous and a little bit anxious yeah. or what it feels like to be a little bit sad and a little bit down and and evolutionarily actually having some of these things is good right if, sure. if you don't yeah. have the capacity to experience anxiety um Mm -hmm. you can you know you don't have the energy to do things and um you can experience a lot of difficulty so it's good to have some anxiety Mm -hmm. if it can be kind of harnessed and channeled appropriately and you know even things like depression it's good to kind of sometimes slow down and and Mm -hmm. reevaluate you know if you have the the passing of a loved one you wouldn't want to kind of just proceed as if nothing happens you do need to kind of take an inventory and and assess mm-hmm. the situation and, and kind of slow down a little bit before, you know, moving forward with a new chapter of your life. And, and a lot of folks argue as well that maybe looking at things more in a continuum can help with maybe some of the, the stigma and the concerns that happen sure. with all this. Because when you, yeah. when you view it as either a person has it or it doesn't, it kind of implies like there's the normal people and the abnormal mm-hmm. people. And really maybe that's not a, like a helpful way to mm-hmm. look at it. Maybe we're all human beings and we all kind of all, you know, all the things mm-hmm. you see in the DSM, we all experience different aspects of those mm-hmm. from time to time. And I think, you know, I, I've heard um, I've heard folks argue that that same idea, even for what we think of as, as more exotic or extreme disorders, right? A, a disorder like, you know, schizophrenia, if you take like a, a paranoid type that includes paranoid delusions that, you know, you imagine things that are true that aren't really true. I mean, I... I think a lot of people do a little bit of this, right? Like just just a little bit, right? Like we can sometimes, you know, have an interaction with somebody and suspect that things went a lot worse than it than they really did, right? Sure. Or or imagine that somebody meant something that they really didn't mean when when they say something carelessly. Or even thinking about, you know, hearing voices or seeing things. I I don't know about you, but like 
Um, anytime I have a conversation that goes really poorly, right? Like it could be an argument I got in with somebody or a conversation at a party where I said something really stupid and afterwards like, and, and it won't even be like silently in my head, I can be in the car having the conversation with the person as as if they were there, right? Like trying to, to relive it and rethink it. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And if you think about your chapter on sensation and perception, you realize sure. the kind of what we hear and what we see isn't yeah. necessarily what's actually in the physical world. It's kind of like how our yeah. brain kind of interprets that. And and if you think about things like you know hearing voices, I mean, we all experience some degree of, of self-talk, right? And that can actually be a helpful yeah. thing to be able to kind of have discussions in your head and mm -hmm. with, you know with yourself or with other people. That's like mm -hmm. a, a healthy thing. And then, yeah, at some point, for some folks, they might experience those things hmm. in a way that they would label as, you know, a, a hallucination. Sure. But it's hard to know, yeah, exactly where that point is. And, and even that, in some ways, could be considered a, a defense mechanism or a coping mechanism that mm -hmm. could be helpful. Sometimes people that have experienced severe trauma to be able to kind of disassociate to some degree sure. could yeah. actually be, you know, yeah. you know quite, quite, quite helpful. So. So in that way, kind of differentiating too some of those experiences. Um, uh, so in, in some ways too, the diagnosing should not necessarily be about maybe the specific symptom, but the person's mm -hmm. experience of it. Hmm. So a lot of times with 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 um, with maybe all of the disorders too, it's is this causing you problems? Is an important yeah. kind of question yeah. to ask. Um, it's you know just because something is statistically unusual doesn't necessarily mean it's harmful and, mm -hmm. and in that way too we have to look at kind of different different cultures you know mm -hmm. there's different cultural practices where um you know if people from a if people had no familiarity with american culture mm -hmm. And they came to Gainesville on a Saturday afternoon in the fall <laughs> and they witnessed what goes on during yeah. tailgating yeah. and then the football game you know, what would they see, right? They would mm -hmm. see people ingesting, you know, a, a liquid <laughs> substance that's poisonous to their body. Yeah. And then they would be seeing, you know, people collide together and with the potential of brain injury. And this might be yeah. seen as a, you know, some potentially destructive behavior. Sure. But it's kind of very culturally normative here. Mm -hmm. So we wouldn't really diagnose somebody yeah. who enjoys tailgating and football games as having mm -hmm. a disorder. You know, likewise, if we look at other people from, from other mm -hmm. cultures... Um, you know, different cultures have different, you know, you know, religious practices and things mm -hmm. of that nature. And, um, you, you know, with various ideas about spirituality and things mm -hmm. like that. And, and generally speaking, you know, we don't, you know, diagnose people's, you know, religions or spiritual experiences as disordered so long as they're, you know, kind of culturally mm -hmm. normative and not causing yeah. problems. But again, that can be kind of a yeah, uh, uh, you know, a tricky line as well. Wh wh when does something kind of cross those lines into the, it's no longer culturally normative, mm -hmm. and it's potentially causing causing sure. harm? But usually, those are two of the things that we think about: is like, is this culturally normative, and is this harmful? And I know like that that can be a problem for people who want to think about it in terms of like a medical model, right? You have it or you don't, unless we think it's okay. Right. right. Um, I know like one that, that I'm actually really grateful for when it comes to this like kind of cultural perspective um, is the caffeine exclusion from substance use disorders. Right. So we know that like if if you're biologically dependent on a substance to function. Right. This is a problem, whether we're talking about, you know, 
something really serious like heroin or something where you might even be able to function a bit better like like alcohol, right? Like there's a problem. Um, unless of course, and I, I think it says right in the DSM specifically, like it does not apply to caffeine. Yeah, that's a good question. I'd have to I'd have to look at there were some slight changes from DSM four to DSM five yeah. in yeah. terms of how substance use disorders <laughs> are diagnosed. Yes. So I might be an addict now. We're not yeah, sure. Yeah, not sure. Right. That, that, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's that brings up an interesting point that that can yeah. change, right? Where two years ago you would have met criteria. Yeah. Or maybe not met criteria, <laughs> yeah. and then maybe now you do, even though your behavior hasn't changed. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. But some of the language in the yeah. DSM might have, have changed. So, yeah, actually. I could even be drinking less coffee now, and I'm still, yeah. now, now I'm mentally ill, and yeah. I wasn't before. But so it's, I'd have to check and yeah. get back to you on that one. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had a, a one submission here from someone asking a question um, specifically about addictive substances. Um, uh, many, many of us have family members or friends who, who struggle with addiction, right? And, um, you know, we might deal with addiction problems ourselves, especially like outside of, of caffeine. Um, and this person asked a really good question, right? That addiction and addictive behaviors don't seem to just line up with substances, right? Like it, it could be something like alcohol, or it could be something like a really good, like Netflix show or book that you can't put down um why does it seem like it's so hard to quit some things yeah absolutely so um usually when people talk about things that are hard to quit yeah um it usually on some level they're talking about dopamine yeah right you know certain things you know lead to like a dopamine release in Mm -hmm. your brain and that feels good and things that feel good we want to experience more of that yeah right yeah so, um, you know, dopamine is kind of, it, it can kind of produce like a euphoric feeling, but it's yeah. also kind of this like anticipatory excitement mm-hmm. that's kind of related to it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting. If you look at the, the DSM and the progression, mm-hmm. it used to be the, the only things that would be diagnosable addictions were related to substances. Mm-hmm. But for the first time in DSM-5, they actually went ahead and allowed um, gambling addiction really to be something that's that's diagnosable as well. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a significant shift. It's the first time that a non-substance related mm-hmm. behavior is actually being able to be labeled as a disorder. Sure. And now that kind of opens the door for potentially other things. Sure, like, to be like that sex well. addictions or you know thrill-seeking addictions, things like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, within just the last couple of weeks. The um, the World Health Organization um, produces what's called like the ICD codes, mm-hmm. which are used kind of internationally to diagnose conditions. Mm-hmm. And the DSM, um, the American Psychiatric Association, and the World Health Organization work mm-hmm. pretty collaboratively together. So if you open up the DSM, you'll see the DSM codes, and then in parentheses mm-hmm. next to them, you'll see the hmm. ICD codes. Sure. But the the DSM only releases new editions kind of every you know few years where the World Health mm-hmm. Organization is kind of constantly updating things. Yeah. So recently, the World Health Organization now for the first time has has um, you know has a code for sexual addiction. Yeah. So this probably means that you know in sure. in some years to come, the DSM will probably also move in that direction, and and people will be able to be diagnosed with mm-hmm. with. Um, with sex addiction so yeah. where does it go from there you know ultimately will things will there be a, a netflix addiction a netflix addiction and, or yeah and, and in other yeah. countries um um in in china for example mm-hmm. um there's really high rates and of and there's probably you know different kind of social sure. cultural reasons for this but a lot of the young males in china mm-hmm. are reporting um 
you know, internet or video game yeah, it, sorts of addictions. In and certainly South that Korea and Japan too, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and certainly that exists in the United States as well, mm-hmm. but it's something kind of where their national kind of organizations focusing sure. on these types of things are kind of, you know, yeah. um, trying to really figure that out and what they what they want to do to help yeah. those folks. And, you know, like I, I know we, we talked about this maybe as a as a future episode, but, you know, the, the video game industry is, is not unaware of that, right? Like, and in fact, like when we think about, I mean, one of the first games that, you know, got really popular this way. It was like Farmville, right? That or Bejeweled or whatever. But whether we're talking about games or internet games, they're they're designed to take advantage of that kind of dopamine release release loop, right? That like anticipation and release and build mm-hmm. again to to keep us addicted in in a very broad, definitive sense, right? right. That, that's where the money is. Yeah, um, actually, you know, you think about that. It's like this is kind of the first. You know, there's been other technological advancements where people have worried about kind of what are the consequences mm-hmm. going to be. Like the first time they started writing things down, you know, some of the yeah. ancient philosophers were concerned that this would destroy people's memory capacities. Yeah. Um, and the first time there was television. But there is something slightly unique, uh, or maybe more than slightly mm-hmm. unique, about some of the, the sure. recent things with the internet is that there's program designers who understand psychology, who are using psychology as they design these products to intentionally make them as, you know, yeah. sort of addictive as sure. as possible. So we'll have to see kind of how that mm-hmm. that un- unfolds. Yeah. Because um, it's a little different than how, you know, when we started writing things down or when we started watching TV, sure. people who designed, you know, mm-hmm. those things weren't necessarily utilizing psychology to try to make yeah, the in that things same way. as, yeah. you know, to capture people's attention as, as yeah. much as they do now. So um, kind of coming up to, to our last question here and tying in again really nicely with, with this substance point, um, there were a number of students who asked uh, really overlapping questions here. And I think kind of for obvious reasons, given where we are kind of socially and right now we're seeing right kind of now, in, we're seeing much more mainstream acceptance of marijuana, right? And Florida was it last year or the year before? It it was I guess it maybe two years ago, right? It was um, approved for medical applications, right? And there there are a number of dispensaries even here in Gainesville where you know theoretically if you have a, if you have a diagnosis and a prescription, you can can go in and get it. Um, as a as a practitioner as a clinician. Um, what mental health impact do you anticipate maybe from this mainstream acceptance of marijuana, especially for people struggling with mental illness already? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, a lot of mental health professionals are kind of of two minds on, on mm-hmm. this sort of issue. On the one hand, again, I think if you look kind of socially, culturally, um, some of the um, the laws we've had in place have kind mm-hmm. of... Um, uh, hurt people, I guess, right? So sure. a lot of, I think, folks are, you know, um, in favor of decriminalization of marijuana and thinking that, you know, if, if marijuana is causing a problem for somebody, it'd be better to invest that money to help get the person some treatment and some health. Sure. So kind of a public health model as opposed to incarcerating that person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, so there's a lot of folks who I think think that the money would be better spent that way. So in that way, they're they're probably, in, you know, in favor mm-hmm. of some of the shifts that are occurring mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, decriminalize marijuana. On the other hand, as we've been saying, like marijuana is a psychoactive mm-hmm. substance. So there's certainly some concerns. You know, any psychoactive substance that a person takes can have a range of effects. Sure. And, you know, sometimes we think about therapeutic effects and side effects, but really whether something is a therapeutic effect or a side effect all sort of depends mm-hmm. on 
what we want to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like when you try to decide what antidepressant, when a psychiatrist decides what antidepressant to give to a person, sometimes that's based on, you know, some of those things are going to maybe stimulate the person's appetite. And some of those things are going to kind of dampen the person's appetite. And, and two, some of them are going to make the person drowsy. And some mm -hmm. of the person is going to kind of make the person a little bit more um, physiologically stimulated. So it depends. Is this the kind of person who's having trouble sleeping? Then maybe the sure, yeah, the yeah. one that's going to lead to drowsiness is a better, mm -hmm. a better method for them. Um, or, you know, things of that nature. So uh, something like marijuana, I mean, it's a psychoactive substance. So it has a range... Mm -hmm of effects. So it really depends on yeah. why the person's taking it and what they're taking it for. Um, the thing is, I guess I would say that it, it, what, what I think maybe some clinicians worry about though, mm -hmm. is that when you're taking a psychoactive substance, if there's not like a trained doctor and pharmacist, pharmacist mm -hmm. kind of observing what you're doing and monitoring at and making mm -hmm. sure that your dosage and uses of it is giving you, you know, the kind of effects you mm -hmm. want and not the kind of effects you don't want you can really get yourself into a lot of problems. So marijuana is not kind of as, as physiologically addictive mm -hmm. as things like alcohol. You know, you, sure. can, you can overdose from drinking too much alcohol and you actually can die from weaning off of alcohol too quickly. Yeah. Something like marijuana, you, um, you don't have to worry about some of those physiological problems, but psychologically it can have a whole range of sure. effects that can be really, um, really problem. It can exacerbate you know, pre-existing anxiety mm -hmm. and depression and even psychosis, or it can trigger, you know, anxiety and depression mm -hmm. and psychosis for people who, you know, haven't yet, you know, ha had difficulties with it yet. So in some ways, like some of the answers to some of the other questions, it really depends. So mm -hmm. if I'm working with somebody who has a family history of psychosis, mm -hmm. these are people that, you know, I would probably err on the side of advising them not to experiment with marijuana because there might be sure. too much of a risk of it triggering something which, um, you know, they might have lifelong problems with. Other people might be able to use it and not experience mm -hmm. difficulty. So in some ways, it's kind of analogous to something like alcohol. Sure. Um, so alcohol can be used by people and they don't experience any difficulties and it can cause a lot mm -hmm. of problems for people. So same thing with marijuana. Marijuana is something that some people can utilize and not experience difficulties. And mm -hmm. for some people, it's going to cause um, a lot of problems. So, I mean, in my clinical work, I've, I've you know, worked with a lot of folks who that's a very significant problem mm -hmm. for them. So um, we're certainly, I think, glad to see things moving in the mm -hmm. direction of, you know, maybe more of a public health model and less of kind of sure. a, a criminalization model. But we're concerned too that with wider spread, um, you know, um, access and mm -hmm. utilization of it, are we going to see rising rates of certain, mm -hmm. um, you know, mental health conditions? So, you know, hopefully we can um, find a way to, um, you know, to be mindful of that and sure. to work with that. Yeah, I mean, like, like you're saying, it's, you know, not not uniquely dangerous nor is it uniquely safe right it's a, a psychoactive substance no sure. absolutely right? I, I agree you know it's like for some folks with um you know terminal cancer marijuana might be a, sure. a you know better option than maybe some of the opioid mm -hmm. you know drugs or, or things like that yeah. but from a normal functioning individual sure yeah yeah you know you're kind of um 
entering just more risk into the picture than mm-hmm. than, than benefit yeah. potentially so so yeah you know yeah likewise there you know i would never advise a patient to go <laughs> to go smoke marijuana you know it's a, yeah. it's it's a risky thing doing with a psychoactive substance sure. so it's not something that you know yeah that i would necessarily recommend just like i wouldn't recommend mm-hmm. people to drink you know sure so. i'm gonna kind of bring us uh, a little bit into a close um just talking about some like mental health stuff um, I know that uh, a lot of folks asked questions that tied into this stuff, but had kind of a, a family or a personal element, right? Um, what do you think is kind of the, the best way for someone who's either struggling with mental health issues themselves, or they have a family member or a friend who is, what is the best way for them to go about seeking some assistance or support? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. I, I th- The first thing I would want to point out is I think that Santa Fe college students are are pretty fortunate because we actually have on campus a counseling center that's free mm-hmm. and there's you know fully you know um licensed you know competent mm-hmm. people there that are happy to to work with students and meet with them and try to decide you know what's going on and what kind of services mm-hmm. might be the most helpful for them whether that be something you know at the counseling center or something else on campus or maybe something else in the, mm-hmm. in the community a, a, as well so that's kind of a great first line is to is mm-hmm. to go there and, and maybe talk with one of those those counselors. For folks who maybe might have friends or family members mm-hmm. who aren't Santa Fe College students, in the Gainesville community, um, we have the Alachua County Crisis Center. Um, so that's a, a, a place too that, that you know offers some, some mm-hmm. good resources for people and, and they can also kind of meet with people and decide kind of you know what, what might be best for them at, the, at this point in time. And there's also community mental health centers like um, Meridian is, is sure. a local place we have. So those would be some of the main places that, that come to mind is being able to offer um, services for folks. Cool, awesome, well, well thanks a lot. Um, do you have any uh, closing thoughts, last last points to make for, for the folks who are listening? Um, no, I, I thank you a lot for, for having me today. Yeah, I guess the, the one thing that comes to mind is I, I can put a, a plug in here is that I do teach a couple different uh, more advanced psychology classes. So I teach um, a class called abnormal psychology where we really get into more mm-hmm. how the diagnostic process works and we look at the DSM. And I teach a class called psychology of personality um, that looks at some of the kind of the theories that are used to um, for counseling and, and psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So for particularly for anyone interested in pursuing uh, graduate school or career in um, psychology or mental health, I recommend those two classes. So again, the abnormal psychology class is more about diagnosing, and the psychology of personality class is more about um, you know treatment and intervention. So I look forward to maybe seeing you, um, some of you all in, in some of those classes in the future. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, that about does it for us. Again, uh, I've been joined here by Dr. Ryan Barbeau, uh, who is a clinician at UF, but also teaches um, abnormal psychology, psychology of personality, also general psychology and developmental psychology here at Santa Fe. So uh, look for his name, sign up for his classes, you'll you'll be in for a treat. Um, again, this is Santa Fe Psych. Uh, thanks for sticking around, and I'll look forward to talking with you in the next podcast. See you online.